Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta. Welcome to our fifth mini failure episode. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes or not enough information available for a full episode. Essentially, we have a list of failures we want to tell you about, but haven't been able to dig up enough information. These episodes are also just a failure. No new segment and no fake ads, at least for now. It's like failureology light. This week's main failure is about the Big Blue Crane Collapse in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The Big Blue Crane collapsed on July 14, 1999 at 5.12 p.m. The collapse occurred at Miller Park, now American Family Field in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, home of the Major League Baseball Milwaukee Brewers. Big Blue is a 172-meter-tall crane leased specifically for the difficult roof section installation. It had a unique configuration, two separate crawlers spaced 30 meters apart, and they were connected by a space frame structure called a strainer. Which is really interesting. So instead of having one crane base, it had almost two bases that had a a metal truss-like structure in between them. And it looks like, from the pictures, most of the weight sat on the back portion of that and then the front was where the the crane operator would sit uh but it's very it's very interesting i have not personally not seen a crane with a base like that i've always seen like one base yeah i worked on a bunch of big projects that had some heavy lift sections i'm just trying to think if we actually had anything where we had the had the two the two crane base and i think we've just done them with one but they've been some fairly substantial substantial cranes but again we never lifted a giant a roof section like this. The other interesting thing that I learned about this is so retractable roofs, which is what is going on here at this Milwaukee stadium, was very, very common. And apparently there were five of them that went up between, I believe it was 1998 and 2001. And so I think Big Blue was one of maybe a group or maybe the Creighton that just kind of got leased for each of these stadium projects, which is really interesting. Yeah, which, which kind of makes sense if there's a bunch of, you know, retractable stadium projects around the world, which I, I would think people are always building stadiums somewhere around the world, taxpayer funded or not taxpayer funded, that there would be cranes that were developed specifically for lifting some of these structures. And so, so the crane, it's a big blue, obviously, it, uh, it had a front tub that rotated on the, on the front crawler piece and it used a, a 300 millimeter diameter, three and a half meter long kingpin to pivot, which is, which is a huge diameter kingpin. It's, it's substantial length and that's uh basically two average sized people stacked on top of each other is, is how long this pin is and big blue was capable of lifting 450 tons just how much this roof section weighed and the uh the roof section was 836 square meters that they were trying to lift and and this was the 10th out of kind of 30 of these panels uh, or, or 30 lifts that they were using to or they were going to use to install this roof on the stadium in Milwaukee. I think something that's interesting, you know, it being 10, the 10th lift out of 30, we're going to get into the factors. The, the parameters of the lift did change slightly in between, you know, each lift, but so there, so there are definitely other factors, but I think, you know, if you do nine lifts and they go, all go fine. And you're lifting kind of similar sized pieces every time, I think you almost get a bit overconfident that you're still, you're going to be okay. Yeah. The, the, the complacency sets in, right? You've done it nine times successfully. There weren't any issues. The 10th one is just the same as the, 
the previous nine are similar enough that, you know, maybe you don't pay as much attention to it as, as what you, as what you should, which is, you know, unfortunately when, when a lot of these disasters or, you know, failures that we've looked at have, have happened after this, you know, complacency does set in. Yeah. So we know that Big Blue collapsed and when it did, three ironworkers, local eight members were killed. Their names were Jeffrey Wisher, William DeGrave, and Jerome Starr. At the time of the collapse, they were in a cage, which was hoisted by another crane inside the new stadium. And unfortunately, Big Blue crashed into the crane that they were hoisted on, and they fell over 60 meters when when the crane collapsed. There were also five others that were injured. Luckily, I mean, if you could say silver lining, 700 other workers had been cleared of the area as a precaution during the lift. So, of course, it is it is very tragic that three people lost their lives in this collapse. But there could have been significantly more had they not cleared the area. Yeah, unfortunate as this is, small silver lining. When the crane collapsed, 1,200 tons of concrete and debris rained down. As we mentioned, Big Blue had the two bases. The front base had the front crawler with the large kingpin. And the back base is where the counterweights sat. And the counterweights were 1,150 tons. So quite substantial. The collapse was strong enough to be measured on the seismograph at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. There were a number of leading causes that were identified for the big blue crane collapse. We'll go through a few of them here. Uh, so the construction companies that were working on site, they were under an incredible amount of pressure to finish work on time, on schedule, no matter what the risk was. So there, there may have been a couple risks that they took that wouldn't normally have been taken in a normal construction project. And there were even penalty clauses for being late. So there was, there's probably a lot of internal incentive for companies to finish all of these things on time. This is very common for projects to be under immense amounts of pressure to finish on schedule. Now, that said, I don't normally see these types of risks taken. Usually safety is first and foremost. So I'm I'm definitely not saying that that construction crews especially in Calgary, where I do most of my work, are, are cutting corners. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a significant amount of pressure to complete projects on time. And again, I don't set the schedule. I don't agree to the schedule, but I watch the schedule. I feel like I'm an observer. And most of the schedules seem unattainable from the beginning. And then, so it's like, we're going to set this a schedule that we probably, you know, we're going to tell you that we're going to meet, but we're probably not going to meet. And then everyone's surprised when we don't meet it. <laughs> I've been on, I've been on both sides of projects like that, where, you know, you set the schedule, you know, it's unattainable. You hope that things will go well, you know, they won't go well. Um, there's going to be something in there. So yeah, it's a project that's supposed to take 90 days, you know, realistically, it's going to take 120 or 150 days. And at the same time too, like this, this happened in 1999 and I've been doing engineering work for 10 plus years and been involved in, you know, projects for that, you know, most of that time. And even in the last 10 years, like I've seen safety culture shift to be much more safety proactive and people being much more safety compliant. So this was a time when I, I don't know if safety was at the same levels that it is now in projects. So there may have been a little, little of the pressure in there, but yeah, having, having a, a difficult to meet schedule in the best of times doesn't help a lot. Um, especially when you get no, a little definitely bit of schedule. And then I will say too, you spend all this extra time discussing schedule and you know whether they're going to finish on time and if they're going to be late and there's and what the consequences are and 
And I'm not saying that's more cost than, you know, finishing on time or finishing late, but there's a lot of emotional labor that goes into not being done on time. It's, for example, you know, if the mechanical systems aren't completely finished or they're they're finished but there's still some kinks in them and they haven't had a chance to work all that out then there's extra complaints or issues or you know troubleshooting it's it's harder to get off the ground it's nice when you get to turn over a fully functional system where everything's been tested everything's functional you've had time to let the system run work itself out you know get all the air out of the system make sure all the sensors and valves and actuators are all working properly yeah you can't it's you don't you can't just turn on a a boiler plant and have it be fine day one. It takes it takes some time, a couple weeks at least, if not a month, to get all those kinks worked out. You've got to get the boiler set up, set up properly. You've got to get the pumps set up properly, balance them, make sure you've got flow everywhere, make sure you've got all the air out of the system, make sure you've got all your set, all your thermostats, you know, wired the right way. You've got heat when you need heat and cooling when you need cooling. So there's a lot that goes into it. That's my biased mechanical opinion. That, uh, that sounds substantially more complicated than shooting lasers <laughs> out of airplanes um, and interpreting data, which is which is what I get to do. And yeah, we're usually involved even much earlier on in a project uh, or, you know, much later at the end of the project. So um, I, I feel our schedule impacts are, you know, as significant and we're not waiting on, you know, people to do a lot of things before we can, you know, start our work. So another, another cause of this, the state construction safety director had left his position three months before the collapse. And it doesn't, from what we could figure out, it doesn't look like his position was, or he wasn't replaced in his position. So they may have not had a, a safety director on site or for this project, which for a large project like this, um, seems like a, an important person, um, to have on site. Oh yeah. And right in the middle of all of the roof lifts, like the, you were at, to me, you're at a pretty critical part of the project where you're doing some of your more dangerous work. Yeah, like any any lift that I've been involved in or, or you know, been on site for, um, there have been a, a lot of people there for the lift. I mean, they were important for the lift. I mean, safety people and managers and, you know, people that have designed the lift um, just to watch the lift and make sure it was going going safely and, and you know, according to the, to the lifting plan. Also, at the time of this lift, the wind speeds were 32 to 34 kilometers per hour, but there were gusts up to 42 to 43 kilometers per hour at the time of the collapse. And the the boom they were using for this lift, it was only rated for winds up to 32 kilometers per hour. So investigation, it did reveal that although the effects of the wide winds on the crane itself had been calculated, it hadn't been considered for the load the crane was lifting at the time. There were a couple iron workers that were concerned about the winds. One of them even called the union to voice his concerns about 75 minutes before at the collapse of Big Blue happened. Which is pretty unfortunate. I'm get, I got a little more information here on some other issues. And I think one thing that you'll see kind of common theme throughout this is that people were, were waving the white flag mention you know noting that this was a problem and there were concerns and they were just kind of going unheard and and action wasn't taken and so that's what we see a lot in these engineering failures is that someone says we've got a problem we've got a problem we've got a problem and other people just say no no it's fine and then you really do have a problem and these failures happen and so i just encourage you listen to people when they say hey i think we've got a problem listen to them and you know there's a 
really good chance that they're right. And if they're wrong, at least you've heard them out. And remember, no matter what side of this you're on, you know, the reporting or you're the person receiving the report, make sure that it's documented somewhere just in case something does happen or doesn't happen. It's, it's written down, it's documented. And that's really important. Mm -hmm. So the collapse was caught on video by an Occupational Safety and Health Administration inspector. And there's a link to this video in the show notes for this episode. He was on site because of several previous incidents involving serious injuries. Before Big Blue collapsed, a worker fell 80 feet and landed on an occupied scaffold. The worker that fell was back at work in a few weeks, and the worker on the scaffold was put on disability, unfortunately. A grinding wheel bounced off of surface and hit someone in the leg. A 25-ton roof section shifted while in a sling and broke a worker's leg. And a heater exploded and burned two workers. So it, it sounds like they've had some issues that have occurred on, <laughs> on this site previously to the crane collapsing, which is probably, like I said, why the occupational health and safety guy was there. The, the inspector was there. Yeah, just a couple issues. We're not done yet. There was other issues. So the the general contractor fired one of the crane supervisors for slowing down progress. The site supervisor was characterized at the trial. So at the, you know, the investigation eventually went to trial. And the site supervisor was characterized as, quote, sloppy with regards to safety and, quote, authoritarian for how he responded to those who expressed those safety concerns. As well, their procedure for calculating wind loads and measuring wind speeds was unclear. So there was no one group that was in charge of it and no one procedure for how to do it. So it seems like everyone kind of thought it was someone else's job, which does that kind of stuff does happen on construction sites. There's lots of stuff going on. People are always afraid to take responsibility for stuff or they don't want to take on stuff. And so things can slip through the cracks if there's no clear process in place. The computer that recorded and measured all wind data was disconnected after the collapse and all of the data was lost. That's what the statement says. I don't know exactly what that means. I'm wondering, when I read it, I thought someone unplugged it to hide the data to so that, you know, maybe they did do calculations and the calculations showed that they had a, they were at risk and they went forward with the lift anyways. And so they wanted to cover up their tracks or maybe the computer was damaged and it just you know, happened to be disconnected and they just unfortunately lost all their data. I don't know if that was malicious or not. That's what it looks to me, which I mean, maybe that's not fair, but that's what it looks like to me. And then as we mentioned, several workers expressed concerns about the wind conditions on the day of the collapse and they all went unheard. The aftermath of this collapse, three firms were fined over $500,000 for the collapse. The widows of the three workers that were killed filed a lawsuit against the company who was contracted to install the roof which is what the crane was lifting at the time, like we talked about. And there's been a bronze sculpture called Teamwork that's been installed outside of the stadium, and that happened in 2001 to honor the three fallen workers on this project. So there you have it, the big blue crane collapse. They thought they had done their homework and the crane was rated for the winds, but they overlooked how much the winds impacted the lift ratings of the crane. Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failurology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com, or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. And there's links to all of these in the show notes. And please don't be shy. We'd love to hear from you. Bye, everyone. Talk soon.